a heavy travel year, not counting domestic travel to see family, would be five, six trips abroad uh, to festivals and things like that. Generally, my field work, actually going to do journalism, happens every three to four years, something like that. And mostly I, I am at the desk. And there are times when I'll tell my agent who, or whoever, just I'm not doing any any festivals, nothing. I just want to sit here and work. So sometimes I go months at a time working. Uh, I do like to get out, like I said, but ultimately most of the job is solitary at the desk. How regimented are you when it comes to working on a book? I mean, are you very, are you hyper-focused on one at a time or, you know, during the process of working on say this new book, were you out there doing some research for future titles? I sometimes work on uh, two or three projects at a time. Over the last, let's say, 10 years, I've been working on side projects as I'm doing my journalism. In fact, I kind of need that. Every Saturday, I used to give over to a side project that grew into another comic called Bump, which isn't journalistic at all. And I've been working on a Rolling Stones book for many, many years, just little by little. I kind of need it to leaven the harder journalistic work. Um, it's really a necessity for me. Right now, I've just given myself totally over to the side project because uh, I, I do have another uh, journalism book that is sort of waiting for me to get to. It, the, field, the field work's already been done. I just have to start it. But I find I'm not in that mood. The side project, specifically in this case, is the Stones book? Yep, and that's full-time right now. I've just, it's fun. I, I've needed that for a long time. I've needed just to let the horse gallop, and I'm just going with it now. But I, I'm starting to get a bit guilty because I have to do a book, uh, like I said, this journalism book, and it, it's a hard book, you know. And maybe over time I've gotten a little worn out by the hard books. So the Stones book is sort of like you, you've been holding off your dessert while you eat the main courses? Yes, that's exactly it. And then you get to a certain age, you kind of want to get to dessert. <laughs> Obviously, you've been doing this for a long time. And I, I assume that you're in a as comfortable place as I guess any cartoonist or writer could be in, in 2020. But, you know, you have publisher, you, you have a publisher, you have publishers, they would probably put out whatever you wanted to, you know, why not commit yourself to doing some just fun work for a while. That's it. And, you know, the truth is the, even the fun work has a very serious component to it. In fact, it's actually a very serious book. It turns out everything, my journalism books are really planned, but the, all the side projects have been sort of unplanned and they sort of go where they're going to go. And this ends up being very, um, a difficult book in a lot of ways, but it's just really fun to draw. I'm not, I'm not drawing representationally. That's the main thing. I'm drawing in a cartoony way. And that's how I normally would draw. Uh, all the representational work I do, which is most of my work, is, is like I'm it's like I'm pulling teeth almost. It's really, it's difficult for me. I've noticed that in, in your work that when you draw yourself, it's still in that cartoony style or, or pretty close to, you know, what, what I've seen in your older work or, you know, BAMP, stuff like that. Do you feel that, drawing something in a more cartoony style would be doing a disservice to the serious subject matter? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at my very early journalistic work, uh, Palestine, especially the first few dozen pages of that, um, it's done in a very cartoony style. And then I, I got some uh, 
pretty sharp comments uh, from Palestinians and Jews about how I was depicting people. And I looked at it and I thought, well, I can see maybe why they might be offended by this because I tend, I mean, I'm a cartoonist. I tend toward caricature and I, I personally tend to the word, the grotesque in my natural way of drawing. So everything was sort of grotesque. And I realized, you know, if it's going to have a journalistic, if it's going to, if I'm going to consider it journalistic, it needs to become more representational, more realistic. And so I sort of pulled everything that in that direction as much as I could, having never studied art. Um, but, you know, my own drawing, my drawings of myself always remained cartoony just because I, I always thought it was an afterthought. I never really thought about making that representational. It, it didn't occur to me to make that more representational. Somehow I wasn't paying attention, let's say that. And then years down the road, it's pointed out to me and I, um, I recognize that now. But I can't sort of, I, I, it's hard for me to draw myself realistically. It was just kind of muscle memory. It didn't, it didn't even occur to you that you were drawing yourself differently than everyone else? That's actually a perfect way of putting it. It was absolute muscle memory. And it remains so to this day. Uh, no matter how, how much I draw myself, it always comes out in this cartoony fashion. <laughs> At this point, you just say, that's what your hand's going to do. And there might be no rhyme or reason to it. Scott McCloud has said, because I draw myself in that way, a reader can better put themselves into my character because I'm more nondescript than the others. That may or may not be true, but it's not the reason. The reason is there was no reason. I don't want to like argue with Scott McCloud on this, but if anything, it's the opposite of nondescript, right? <laughs> it's a caricature and, and, it, and, it, and it does sort of stand out from the rest. I guess my interpretation of it was that it was almost like, it's almost self-effacing, which is just, I think, a quality that just all cartoonists have, have regardless. I don't know if it's like hyper self-critical or what, but, you know, almost by their very nature are drawn to poking fun at themselves. Yeah, I think that's, that is part of it. I mean, the, the other thing is it's, it's actually, sometimes you draw yourself the way you feel. It might not be a realistic drawing, but it, it says more about your internal struggle in a way. I don't know if I'd call it self-effacing exactly, though I think that there's an element of that, but I think it's more... Uh, for me, it's just more, I, I always feel sort of awkward in some of these situations. Like you're in a journalistic situation and you kind of think, um, do I really belong here? Do I really know what I'm doing? I'm, I feel like I don't know exactly sometimes. And that sort of comes out sometimes in, in the drawings. We were, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about the recent conversation that you had with Art Spiegelman and, you know, he was, uh, drawing on his own experience of, of working on mouse. And, and he felt that in that book specifically, it was very important for him to insert himself as a character. So it was kind of, it was clear to the audience, I guess, how the story was being told and, and how it was being framed. You know, I assume that having done this for a little while and trying to be empathetic and, and mindful of others and letting other people tell their story that you are very aware of, how you insert yourself into the story in, in this book, paying the lands. Why was it important that you be a character in the work? I think out of, I think out of sheer consistency in the sense that that's kind of how my work has always been. And I never really considered not putting myself into the book. I think having yourself in the book. And for me, that came out of just the standard autobiographical tradition. I, I never really thought it through before I'm, 
inserted myself in works that became journalistic. But the advantage, of course, is that the reader is can tell that you're look that they are seeing something through someone else's eyes, through a specific individual's eyes. I'm not some sort of all-knowing journalist hanging in the background. Um, that everything is there's a negotiate there's a sort of a a filter, and I am a filter. And that's clear from the fact that I draw myself in my work. The reader's being tipped off to that. Do you feel that over the years that you've pulled back on that a little bit, that you're inserting yourself into the story less as a character? This book specifically, you're not in a lot. I'm in it a lot less. It depends on the type of book it is. Now, if you look at a book like Palestine, my first uh, major journalistic stuff, you know, uh, work, um, in, in, in that book... I'm the sort of the glue that's holding all these episodes together. It's, it's a very episodic book. I also, I mean, to be honest, wasn't exactly sure what I was doing. I, I didn't have clear ideas of where I belonged and what my place was in these books. Over time, that's become more clear to me. And when major characters are there that can hold a story together themselves, let's say Eden in the book Safe Area Garage, I, I tell a lot of the story of that Bosnian town through his eyes, I can hold back a little more. Um, with this book on the indigenous people in the Northwest Territories, the Dene, I didn't really need to be in the book. They're talking, it, it's mostly from their perspective. And the only times I'm going to be in, in the, I'm going to be in the story is to sort of uh, contrast maybe a, a very Western standpoint or an, or a urban standpoint um, to, you know, this vast uh, land like the Northwest Territories in the outdoors. I'm a very urban person. And so there's a contrast there that might somehow bring something out, out about that particular place. You know, often I, I find the other thing is, you know, you, there, are lo- there are many um, meetings you have with people where um, because you're an outsider, there's there's sort of a, I won't say a clash exactly, but you, you come to an understanding and that coming to that understanding is, can be very enlightening somehow to show that, to show your, your being an outsider in a situation where they're not used to outsiders or they question you as an outsider. They question what you're doing there. I, I find those sorts of things of interest. I don't like to take those out of the out of the equation. I guess it's important to contextualize a little bit here. So these are modern people now living in the world, you know, they, they, they have their customs, but you know, they do, they do exist in, in, in modern Canada. Is there a sense like dealing with the Denny people specifically that they don't interact with outsiders that much? No, they, they do interact with outsiders, but I mean, if you're an outsider going to some of the more remote uh, communities and you're asking a lot of questions it's how, how are they going to look at it? They've had other people coming, asking questions, sort of probing, anthropologists, researchers. And in some ways, you know, they can be suspicious of you for that reason. As someone told me, you've got to look at how they're looking at you. And maybe they look at you through colonial eyes, which are, which are basically, you know, you're an outsider, you're coming, you want to get something from them for your story, for your book. Something is being taken from them. Something's being extracted in a way as resources are extracted. And so you've got to be aware of that. And sometimes it's worth showing some of that interaction 
So you get, so the reader will get a sense of how they consider themselves, how they consider you and seeing it in the broader context of something like colonialism. Is that a sense that you'd ever had before this idea of extracting something from the people you were speaking to? Not that this is necessarily service journalism, but there is a degree of that, right? Of, of you're wanting to tell the stories of these people who don't necessarily get to tell their stories that much, who, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not, at, you know, being an American, I'm not super familiar with their stories. So, so there is a sense of service there. Uh, but have you ever had this feeling before that, that you're, you doing the job that you're doing as a journalist, that you are taking, perhaps taking something away from them? I've often not felt I was taking something away, but I've often thought that you can be trampling on people's memories, on their stories, on their situation. I think no journalist, I think, can go to a place that they don't know, especially under sort of more, you know, relatively extreme conditions and not think that they're somehow exploiting a situation. I mean, that's not what you're there for but it crosses your mind and it crosses other people's minds because ultimately you have the, as, as a journalist going in, you have a, a ability generally to get out and to, you know, you can share people's experiences to a point, but ultimately it's their lives that are being affected by historical events that are going on. And you as a journalist can dip your toe in and then pull back whenever you need to. You're a tourist in a sense. I wouldn't say I'm a tourist, but but there is a this sort of an ephemeral um, this sort of an an ephemeral construct to your presence there. You're there and you're gone, and so you you ultimately do question why you're there. You have to sort of know you're and you're constantly questioning yourself. I've questioned myself throughout my my whole career. It's like, what am I doing? Am I actually doing any good? And people are often prodding you with the same question. Not always. Most people are very open. They want to talk. They want to tell their story. They, you know, they, they like you and they, they want to give you something. They want to give you their stories and their memories and all that. But there are always those who just see it in a different way. And they are constantly reminding, they, they remind you of what you know in your, in your own mind and what, what's sort of troubling you yourself about the whole profession. Do you feel that the role of your character in the book is in some way a, a surrogate for the audience, you know, that, that you're kind of assuming that since most of the people who are reading this book will be uh, approaching it as an outsider, that, that you're able to kind of act as a, a conduit into that world as an outsider yourself? I think there's truth in that, but I don't try to do it very self-consciously. I just try to be me in the book and put my experiences. And, and in a lot of ways, I'm ordinary enough that I think most ordinary readers are going to relate to those experiences. They might feel uncomfortable. They might think, oh, I'd feel uncomfortable in the same way. So I think it works in that way, but I don't, I don't try to overthink it. I assume that your intentions evolved while you were there. You know, I mean, I, I, I've heard you describe the, the process of kind of figuring out that this was something that you wanted to pursue. And perhaps this is the way a lot of your stories develop, but, you know, as a magazine article, that develops into another trip that develops into something else. So like as they're trying to get a read on what your purpose is, you're also really trying to figure out what your purpose is. There's a truth to that. I mean, the first trip I took up there, I had a very definite idea of what I was trying to find. I was trying to basically find out what indigenous people thought about the resource extraction around them. It was a pretty simple idea for a magazine. It, it was clear to me that there was a lot more going on 
and you couldn't talk about resource extraction without talking about the meaning of land. And if you're talking about the meaning of land to an indigenous people, you have to get into how the land was taken away, what their relationship now is with the land, how they're negotiating with the government about the land, and how, in this case, the government of Canada wanted to break people from the land. And they did that through the residential schools. So it becomes, it became a bigger story. More, when you, you know, you can read a lot about a, a place. When you go there is when you begin to sort of see what's really flying around. And there were many times where I felt like, okay, there's kind of an elephant in the room here. People start talking about residential schools. And I was told before I went there, you know, be careful, don't bring up residential schools because it's very sensitive. And I thought, well, okay, I'm not, I won't. But it kept coming up. And then at some point you realize, no, this is, this is so integral, integrally woven with the story of land and what happened to the land. You cannot, you have to tell the whole picture as holistically as possible. And so, yeah, you, you develop a different way of thinking about what you're doing. You realize, oh, this is not just a magazine piece. This is a book. And suddenly, you, you know, four years down the road, you've realized, okay, maybe, I, maybe I, I got some handle on it. Do you get a sense of when, when it evolved from a magazine piece into a book of when you were aware that this was something that you wanted to spend the next four years of your life on? I think it's when I was doing the magazine piece and I felt it was inadequate. I felt the magazine piece, which is in French, it's not in English, touched on a lot of things without really getting under the skin of those things. And that bothered me as a journalist trying, you know, trying to get something across. You know, you just sort of tip, you're tiptoeing around something. You've looked at it, but not really touched it. And you realize, okay, it's the job of the journalist to really get something. And I felt really compelled to go and, and um, sort it out, basically. Is that something that you run into a lot on pieces when, when you're working on something shorter that, you know, you feel like you're only touching the tip of the iceberg? Or, or was this special in that respect? No, it's, it's really, that's the case in a lot of pieces. I mean, for example, um, I did a story about Iraq and I turned that into two relatively short pieces. I could have done a book about that. I just moved on to something else. It was, in fact, those, that, that piece, those pieces were sort of an interruption from a bigger book I was doing about Gaza. There are many things that I have that I, uh, many stories I've collected over time that I just, I leave out because of time, because you move on, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons for, uh, uh, what, what I don't like to do is leave loose ends. Like if I'm going to tackle a short piece, I want to have it a self-contained short piece. It doesn't mean that there are many other things that were going around on, in the, on the periphery that I couldn't get to because there usually are. The editing process, there's a lot that you have to leave on the cutting room floor. What was it about this specifically? Because, you know, again, like when, when you start portioning off your life into seven to four to seven year chunks, you know, you realize not that you're like super old, but you do realize that like we've all got like a finite amount of time on earth. Obviously, we've got a finite number of books in us and, and you know, and, and maybe there'll be a point when it won't be as easy to spend four to seven years on a, a project. Can you pinpoint what it was about this story that really versus the myriad other projects you're working on that needed to be told? Well, ultimately I realized it needed to be a bigger book when I saw that there was a whole colonial process that had taken place and that was still taking place. And in fact was unspooling. I I began to realize that colonialism isn't something that ended in the 1800s or ended when a commission issued a report 
and, you know, tied something up with a bow. Colonialism is unspooling in the serious destruction that was done to indigenous communities that is passed on down the generations with, you know, through alcoholism, through domestic violence, through all those things that basically took these very strong communities and turned them upside down and shook them around. That stuff hasn't stopped. So I realized this is a living story and it's about colonialism. Colonialism has always interested me. You know, I've always sort of more historically in a certain sense, and obviously it's not. And so that's when I realized, okay, this is a story about a very big theme. I've heard you describe part of the draw of this story specifically, that you were at a point in your life or in your career where you wanted to sort of step back from war for a little while. Did you get the sense that you were just kind of taking a break, that it's something you'll go back to eventually? Or do you feel like that period of your life is kind of done? Well, what I realized is you can't get away from violence. That's what sort of surprised me about this story too. It's like, I thought it was going to be a, a story about indigenous people and resource extraction, but there was tremendous violence that was done to the people through the residential school system, sexual abuse, uh, beatings, and just destroying, trying to destroy a culture. So I never, you can never really get away from the violence, but I did want to get away from shooting. I mean, I just don't want to draw guns if at all possible. I got, I got fed up with that sort of stuff. Specifically for your own safety? No, it's, no, it became sort of a psychological dead end because you realize it's, it's in some ways, I thought I could explain things historically. I, I, I felt like that's kind of what I've been doing is this sort of standard journalism or explaining things historically. But in the final analysis, you begin to ask the question of yourself as it, or I do, did anyway, is, okay, this isn't, is this really just a matter of there's a land that two peoples are questioning, they have questions over, or they're embroiled in a conflict about land? In the end, what I began to really, that really began to trouble me is how can this person kill this person in cold blood? And then you realize, okay, that really isn't a question for journalism. My mind began to go and look for other things to write about journalistically and maybe treat some of those psychological elements that are not journalistic in my Stones book to be honest. I mean, in, in my other side projects, but the idea of, okay, I, I'll tell you, I, I'm working on a book. I should be working on a book about a massacre that took place in India. Now I'm really not in the, the violence is important to, to tell, to talk about, but what I'm really interested in is how violence is used in, in democracies, how it's used um, in relationship to elections. And then this, there's a psychological component is, what do people tell themselves about a violent event about a year after it's happened? How do they put together a story for an outsider, basically? I, I very self-consciously wanted to hear how people would explain a story like, okay, those 13 missing people from the village, what happened to them? And just to see how, how they build a story for themselves. An official story, but it might not be the truth. And then the journalistic side of that interesting look at human psychology, to me, the journalistic side is to find out what really did happen so you can contrast what they're telling you with what actually happened. You know, it sounds like sort of the breakdown in the war concept specifically is we tend to, especially when we're viewing it from the outside, tend to think of these conflicts in, in um, abstract ways as the, and motives as, as the motives of nations specifically. 
And obviously when you travel to a place and are on the ground and are talking to people, you realize what should be painfully obvious, which is, you know, these are all, these are obviously, these are people engaged in the wars. The disconnect for me, and I'm asking this as, as a journalist myself, is why isn't discovering the motivations of the individuals fighting the war, why isn't that an element of journalism? No, that, that is an element of journalism. And maybe that's what I'm trying to get to, is to get more to the, the human motivations. I mean, to me, it was when I was, when I was working on uh, the book Footnotes in Gaza, which shows massacres of Palestinian, unarmed Palestinian uh, civilians, men, by Israeli soldiers. And to me, you know, I don't think of these soldiers as monsters. I think of them as ordinary people. And that book is about, that book is about, um, it's a historical book. It's, it's trying to tell a story that basically hasn't been told in English. It's trying to interview people to make sh- to, to basically confirm that these events actually happened, have many different witnesses, many different uh, viewpoints about the story. You know, generally speaking, you, it's hard to go back and find pe- soldiers who were involved in, in those sorts of shootings for example. I mean, the motivations of why soldiers are fighting. I mean, you know, in Iraq, I talked to soldiers and there were different motivations and, and very seldom did it seem to have to do with some sort of ideological thing. They were involved in it because, well, they wanted to study. This is a way of getting free education. And their main motivation was getting themselves and their comrades home in one piece. The mission itself was of, of some secondary interest, but really the main thing was getting themselves home. That story has been told many, many times over and over again. I mean, if you read war literature, it's kind of, it's very repetitious. Saving Private Ryan, it's always the stories of soldiers who are, you know, perhaps there is some like nationalistic reason that, that people enlist in the first place, but you can't just assume that everybody involved in war is a sociopath. <laughs> There's probably yeah, an element of that. I don't, think, I don't think they are. And, you know, generally speaking, I've done very little work with soldiers. I have spent time with soldiers, but most of my work has been refugees and people sort of affected, usually civilians. That's, that's usually been my tack. One of the reasons I wanted to do a story about soldiers is I want to have some round out in some ways my own understanding of what goes on uh, in, in those sorts of situations. But it's usually refugees. And maybe that's part of, let's say, my burnout on it is because I've met many refugees in, in many different places. And it's, it's kind of the same sad story. And I mean, it's important to document that stuff, but you, you have to realize every, I think every journalist has sort of a half-life in certain situations. And you have to realize when, you have to realize when you, you're actually doing good work and you still feel fresh enough to do it. And when you're beginning to sort of waver a bit, you just have to know it's time to move on to something else. And sometimes you don't even know what that point was or what that point is, but you just feel like it's not, it's not what you want to do anymore what you thought you were getting when you're going into it was different than what it ended up being. But I suppose from my point of view, when I'm reading this book, it doesn't feel like telling the story of the Denny people is all that different from telling the story of these refugees. In, well, in some ways, I'm, in some ways, I mean, I can't help in these sorts of situations trying to find out what's going on. And usually there's a, there's in places like that, there's, 
in places that have, where a violence has been perpetrated on a people, there, there are people who struggle through it, who see it for what it is and try to move through that towards something else or regain something of what they were before, whatever you want to say. And there are some people who kind of get beaten down by it and have a hard time getting up. Those are the commonalities I, I find with the refugee stories I've done or the stories I've, I've, I've covered. I mean, you, you, or you come across people who seem really resilient and you're almost surprised. You think, God, I could never be that optimistic in a situation like this. But they're just like, uh, they look at things very practically. How am I going to get this done? And those are the people who gener- generally do well. It's the philosophers who don't. <laughs> you know, it's the ones who sort of let it get to them in a way that it prob- might get to me. If your goal was to do something that, that wouldn't have the same kind of emotional drain on you as the other books, I think you've failed in that respect. No, I mean, I did fail. And that's one of the reasons. Look, I, I find it, I, I found it incredibly worthwhile to do that book. I find all my books are being worthwhile. It's got to be incredibly taxing. Well, it was because I didn't expect that. I did not expect to go and sort of see the effects of violence. I didn't, when I went up there, I wasn't planning for that. But then when you're there, you're like, okay, you're a journalist. It's like, okay, this is an important story to tell. And you just tell it, right? You try to tell it as best you can. And yeah, it's, it's taxing to that point that you think, okay, now I need, a break. I need a break from this sort of thing for a while. And let's see how long that while will be. I mean, obviously your friend was sort of, was serving as your guide into this world. But when you were first approaching people to have these conversations with them, how did you ingratiate yourself? And how did you convince them that, that your intentions were good? I'm not sure how I ingratiated myself. I think they allowed me just out of the the goodness, just the goodness and kindness to strangers. They just sort of allowed me to bumble a bit. I mean, I probably said some things that were, I'm not going to say they were inappropriate, but they weren't maybe what they wanted to hear. I remember one, one man saying, what did you think of the drive up? And it was like, you know, it took us about three days to get up the Mackenzie River Valley. And to me, it was incredibly tense because it was like these, you know, these turns and it's icy and there's these like Mack trucks driving by you. And I decided yeah. these ice roads. Yeah. I mean, it was like a very sort of tense trip. And I realized right away, that's not what he wanted to hear. What he wanted to hear or what he thought I would see is just the beauty of the place. And so there, there are people like that um, had to sort of look at me and just sort of say, well, is this guy worth talking to or not? And, you know, fortunately, a lot of people were willing to talk to me. Some people were more testy than others because they didn't know my motives. But sometimes I just, you know, you're lucky. You ask the right question right away and you go, okay. And they, they just suddenly take you seriously. The schools, for example, which, you know, you were told was this very sensitive thing that you weren't supposed to talk about. You're asking strangers deeply personal questions. Yeah, I think that some of that came from, there are different ways that that happens. Many times people would just start telling me stuff and I'd say, Oh, let me ask you a bit more about that. And they would tell me a few more things. I began to sort of get a sense of it from a lot of different conversations, but sometimes you're really lucky. And when a man like Paul Andrew, who starts off the book um, is willing to tell you about something like that, you realize that this is just sort of the gift he's giving to me. For some reason, he's decided that he's going to tell this story and trust me. Now, how does that work and why that works? That is the, um, 
that's kind of one of those secrets that even I'm not privy to. I, I don't have, I don't think that's something I could teach. I think it's something you, that happens or it doesn't happen because someone likes you. It's just the right moment for them to say something. They might've gone a long time or their whole lives or whatever without really getting into that sort of stuff. And now they're going to tell you. Other people, there's a woman named Valerie Conrad. I was staying with some people that knew her and she decided that she would tell me her residential school story. She told me she'd only mentioned it once. She'd only sort of told part of it once to someone else. But she was just willing to. And I mean, sometimes it's just like letting people talk. And I, what I learned there very well, because I was told, don't interrupt elders. I learned not to interrupt as much as I used to. It's funny looking at some of my old transcripts of older interviews in other situations where I... I sometimes someone was on the road to telling me something and I cut them off perhaps because I wanted to interject something that made, made them understand that I knew what was going on too. And in, when I, in the Northwest territories, I learned to let people talk and let things unwind a little more before I prompted another question. You feel that you were able to get more toward the heart of things by doing that. In this particular case, I think so. I think there's a depth you never get to exactly as a journalist, but I think I got, I think I got, I got to some places, you know, that I think would be useful for the book and for the reader. Do you get the sense in some cases that these were stories people were waiting to tell? It's, it's possible. Uh, Sometimes you're in a situation and you realize that, um, Everyone has lived the same experience, so they don't tell each other their stories. In the community. Yeah. I remember being in Bosnia and going around with uh, my guide and friend at the time, Eden. I said, let's interview all these people who, live, who are living around you. They're living in these burned out homes. They're refugees from other parts of eastern Bosnia. And so we went around and we were interviewing them. And they were telling me their stories. And he said it was really getting to him. And he said, you know, I've never heard these stories and I never really asked because we've all lived through this. I know what happened to me. Why would I want to know what happened to them? It's sort of like uh, they've all shared a, a story. So it's sometimes an outsider coming in and actually asking very, you know, asking about that story. They might not have told it. It's understood in those communities. You don't have to tell it. When I'm out, reporting a story one of the just purely you know i obviously i i enjoy the process of doing reporting and interviewing people and i i very much enjoy the process of writing but one of the purely most pleasurable moments is when you you hear something and you know that you have a framing device or you know that you have a hook you know something you could build a story around was it clear when you were talking to paul that he was something that you could hang the rest of the book on oh yeah that you know every like you say i mean that's what you sort of learn in journalism school you because especially you're writing relatively quickly when you're doing a news story is you you're interviewing someone and they say something and some spark goes off you go, that's how i start the story or that's the quote you almost like want to just like run home and write it you're like now nah, i gotta finish the interview but, I, but well, I got it. You, you got it yeah. with him it was clear out of out of his generosity that he was going to tell me something and tell it in a very cogent fashion and tell me many different facets of the story and give me a very holistic depiction of life in the bush and then life in residential schools. And even beyond that, give me his analysis of it, his understanding of how that, how, what, 
happened to him in residential schools was opposed to everything he knew growing up. He had a critique, in other words. There was a, a completely holistic thing he was giving me, and it was clear that this was a really important interview. When I started doing the book, I had other beginnings to it, and then suddenly I thought, I should just start it with Paul Andrew talking about life in the bush. Because first of all, it was such a beautiful story. And from there, you can show what's happened. You can show what life was like. And then it's just clear that over the course of the book, you're, you're seeing disruption. And then you begin to tie it back to what's exactly happened to Paul personally and other people. Yeah, it was, it was kind of perfect. Was the ending as clear? The ending wasn't clear. The ending, I sort of knew it should end at the hand games. um, But I hadn't really written it until I was maybe three quarters of the way through it. Can you just explain the hand games for those who haven't read? The hand games are one of the cultural things that the Dene people uh, still very actively enjoy. And, you know, if you're a Westerner looking at it, it looks like a very simple guessing game because uh, people, men generally, a, a team of men are holding a token in one hand and it's the object of the other side to guess what hand a token is in. And that token keeps changing places and all those men, you know, who you, who, who that person will get, you know, they'll, they'll, he'll get the token right. He'll say, oh, it's in that hand. And a lot of these people go out and then some remain. But if you're a Westerner looking at it, you think this is just a guessing game. He's just deciding which side he's going to choose. And if the tokens on that side, they're out. But it was always sort of explained to me as, no, this is really a psychological game. I mean, there's a lot going on in this game. If you, if you read about it, you would probably think it's just a guessing game. If you see it and you see the kind of power around it, the noise and the drumming and all this other stuff going on, it, it's sort of elevated to some other some other sphere. And in this, in one particular case, there was a guy, he just couldn't be guessed out. The, the guy trying to guess which hand it was in just couldn't get it. And at some point you think, okay, maybe this is way beyond the law of averages. And you begin to sort of believe it yourself in a way. And you see there's something going on. And maybe you begin to frame that whole way, the, the Western rationality compared to some other way of thinking of things, just not your way, not this, this, mathematical way of thinking of the world, which is kind of, I think, how, how sometimes we fall down in the West. It makes sense as a metaphor from the standpoint of attempting to understand somebody else's context for viewing the world. That there's another way of thinking about just life in general. I mean, the way the indigenous people think of land is so different. When I went there and people said, the land owns us, that's extremely foreign to me. I mean, you read John Locke and you go to school here and land is something to be parceled out and and sold. And then you hear what they have to say about land and you begin to get it. And you know, as a Westerner, it's not like I'm going to have indigenous thoughts from now on, but now I can always pull that into my own way of thinking of things, my own Western way and think, there is another way of thinking about this. Maybe I should recontextualize how I'm thinking about what's going on next door, literally what's going on next door when all when they knock down a house and put up four homes in its place and tore down all the trees. I wasn't thinking of it 
just in terms of, oh, this is my property and look what they're doing to my privacy. It was, you know, I began to think there used to be birds in those trees. <laughs> There's another way of thinking about this that is not the way we normally think about it. The way you've described the Stones book up to this point, it almost seems like they, again, that the Stones are a framework, uh, that the Stones are like a cipher for telling, for telling all these other stories that you've been wanting to tell for a while. And, and I'm curious, paying the land specifically and, and speaking to the Dene people specifically has given you at least the desire to the drive to, to recontextualize things to kind of, I don't know, let go of your ego is maybe a good way of putting it. Do you feel like that new way of looking things is going to inform how you approach the new book? Yeah, it already has. I mean, I'm trying to bring in people like John Locke, people like some of these Western um, philosophers, political thinkers that we've kind of, we read over and over again and maybe re-examine some of those sorts of things. I mean, colonialism is a part of the Stones book. I probably might not have gotten so much into that if it wasn't for visiting the Dene people. All my books sort of inform me and are informing any new work I do, but definitely the book I I did up in the Northwest Territory has made me look at things through a different different lens. It doesn't mean that I, I don't still carry my old lenses with me, because you cannot you know, rub those out, but you can rethink, you can think about them again and you can maybe take what it is. Now I begin to think, what is it of being, of being a Westerner is of value. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, and I mean that seriously, and I don't mean to even cast aspersions on being a Westerner, but I'm trying to really answer that question for myself. Like, what have we given the world? And that's part of the Stones book. Trying to answer that question or at least approach it. Do you have a better answer to the question than you had a year or two ago? I have the question now. I didn't really have that question a year or two ago. And so that's, you know, the question might always remain with me, but that's definitely going to be a part of my future work. There's some very obvious parallels you can draw as far as colonialism is concerned to the stones, you know. I mean, there's... You know, there's this, there's this very basic idea of, of the early work of, you know, these white Europeans very much co-opting Black American music. The song Brown Sugar is quite literally, there's definitely some problematic stuff in there and, and some things that we don't necessarily discuss when we discuss the work of the Stones. For you, are the parallels that literal? Well, they can be literal, but even something like the song Brown Sugar, he's taking on the persona of a of a slave master in fact he's actually he's talking about the fact that white men slept with slave women i mean that doesn't mean he's necessarily endorsing it so it's interesting to me that he's bringing it up there are other parts of their um oeuvre that you might consider problematic i guess that song specifically you know i you know and, and this is not necessarily the fault of Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, but you can't just divorce this from the stone specifically, but a way a song like that is, is understood and embraced by the masses isn't necessarily this like nuanced picture that they're trying to give to it. You know, there's like lines in there that people are singing along to. And because of the way that they've been interpreted can therefore become problematic. Yeah, definitely. And especially in modern contexts where we examine these things, we cancel you know, artists or people uh, based on things that they did in other contexts. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. 
and I sort of, in some ways, I play things many different ways with this book. I mean, I love the Stones. I love the fact that they use the blues again. And as I, I went to see Buddy Guy relatively recently, and he said, if it wasn't for them, in you know, the concert, if it wasn't for them, you know, white people might not have heard our music in America. So, I mean, there are a lot of different ways of thinking about that sort of thing. I mean, is it a book about the Stones? Is it a book about you? Is it a book about America? What's? <laughs> oh, wow. You've actually, those are three themes. I mean, part of it's autobiographical. And it's part funny it, to say America, too, about a very, a very British band. You know, I got to say, it's funny call, even calling it a book about the Stones, because it's, it's really, I mean, you could basically say it's everything I've always wanted to write about, everything that all the ideas I had when I was doing my stories, I thought that isn't journalism. All those things between those journalistic points you put down, all the stuff in the middle, it's sort of thrown into a blender. It's very hard for me to describe it. It's very hard for me to describe the book. The Stones is the thing I bring out because that's sort of the thing that is a thread through it. But it's not really the main it's not really a main thing. It started out as a main thing, but like I'm letting this book just do what it's going to do. It's going to be a mess. It's a chaotic mess, to be honest. Because all my work is very structured. Most of my work is very structured. Obviously, you were a pioneer of or did pioneer comics journalism. You know, there wasn't really, there wasn't a framework for it before. I get the sense that you still feel obligated to adhere to certain structures and certain ideas of journalism in the context of your own work. Yeah, I, I consider myself in some ways a traditionalist, not in the sense of how I think of objectivity and the fact that, you know, I'm a character in my book that isn't in my books, that isn't generally a journalistic, sort of an American journalistic attribute. To me, what what became very important is is to do what I was, the basic things I was taught was to interview people and to talk to people and find out their stories. And that's, that to me is sort of the, the essence and the nugget of journalism. And in that way, I'm, I'm pretty traditional. When I'm, when I'm, I might have my viewpoint and I try to wear it a little on my sleeve in a way, but I always try to approach it that I'm keeping a very open mind about what I'm seeing. And so even things that I see that are disturbing or that might color someone's uh, way of thinking about this, to me, if I'm seeing it, I have to report it. That's kind of how I look at it. And even this book, I mean, it felt uncomfortable doing stuff about alcoholism, all that sort of thing. I kept arguing with myself, how much should I get into this? But you realize everyone's talking to you about it all the time. It's no secret up there. You just have to put it in the context of what it, how, why there are, there are problems with alcohol. And again, you know, I can, I can, I can trace it all the way up to colonialism again. So, so yeah, I mean, I've got this sort of gonzo-ish aspect to my journalism, but even if you read someone like Hunter S. Thompson's uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, it's wild and crazy, but if you actually read the book, you'll see that he really knows how the electoral process works. He knew, he knew the ins and outs of it. So if he's going off the deep end and jumping off, off, he's jumping off real knowledge of how the system works. He's not just sort of, you know, rocketing through, making fun. To him, it's deeply serious. For whatever reason, we're never really able to do an interview over the years. And one thing that I've always really wanted to ask you um, is when we tend to think of journalism, we 
tend to think of it as being something in the moment, right? Of, you know, if you're embedded in a war zone, you're, you're like calling your editor on the line or, you know, you're typing up something really quickly and sending it to them. You know, if it's for, for a website or a magazine, it's something that goes up that day or the next day. Obviously making a comics is not that. It's a very long and painstaking process. This was a relatively short book for you in that it only took you four years to, to do. So how do you, how do you square the two? Well, I long ago gave up the idea of doing uh, news on a 45-minute deadline. Though that's why I loved, that's why I got into journalism, because I loved that, that sort of thrill. You're right, it's slow journalism. I square the two because I think some of the themes I'm getting to are bigger. It's usually people in extreme conditions. How do people behave? How do they rise above it? Or how do they fall from it or because of it? So... I, I hope that's what makes some of my stories, or I hope that I hope that's what makes them have a universal component. And that's what interests me. And that's why I think, you know, if I look at my work, I'm hoping that what I'm going to see is these stories still matter. Now the ins and outs of a battle in Garajda on East, in Eastern Bosnia in 1994 might not matter journalistically anymore but how people behaved in those in those situations can till can still tell us something. I heard you discussing I think it was a previous book. It might have been the Gaza book. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, it was a conversation that you had with someone and they were they didn't understand why you wanted to know the history, why you wanted to go back in time when all of this stuff was still still unfolding in the moment. It was probably the Gaza book you know, you see it as being your job to provide that history in order to give a better picture of, of what's happening now. That's something that I assume that that can be a sometimes difficult line to walk, but it's something that you have to walk when you're creating a book that not only takes you four to seven years, but hopefully if it does its job right, is something that people are going to want to pick up off the shelf in, in 10 or 20 years. And then it will still, still hold some, some value for them. Yeah. I mean, I, that's that is what I want, and I think um, I think context is important, and, and history has always been really important to me. Providing a the reader with an understanding of what happened before is is absolutely essential. You can't look at you know a refugee camp in the Ga- in the Gaza Strip and just start there with oh look at these poor people, look at their bad conditions. Well, actually, how did they get there? What were their conditions before? You know what happened to put them in this place? You have to go back into time. And the, and the truth is, even that, even that phrase is, is odd because I just feel like we're part of this continuum. We're part of this swirl. And, and often for me, like I, I read a lot of history, something that happened in 1789 or 1066, I mean, that still resonates with me somehow. I, I still think of those people as real people, real flesh and blood people who just aren't with us anymore, but all that stuff matters. I've always been just so wrapped up in history myself and, you know, as since I was a kid. So um, I've never quite understood why people say they don't like history. To me, it's the story of people. One of the powers that, that your books and that comics journalism has in general is that because there is a visual element to it, it, it creates a sense of immediacy that you don't really get in reading a history book. This actually ties to a question that I had as you were describing the hand game, you know, you said very specifically, it's something you have to experience to 
really understand the value of. Now that's not a funny thing to say, but you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to say for somebody who's like trying to translate it to people. When you're dealing with something that like, I assume, you know, going to Gaza or, or meeting these people, certainly being in a war zone is something that you have to experience in order to really get, you know, the, 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 all, all of the necessary information about like, how do you, how do you capture the incapturable? Oof. I mean, to me, it's, um, it's a matter of what I'm drawing is to try to understand that everything I'm drawing needs to have its worth. I need to bring the worth of what I'm drawing to life somehow. I, what touched me has to touch me as I'm doing it. So the, the process of doing it, that's why I like to draw things all by hand. That's why it almost has to be painful. I've got to put the work into it. I've got to put the detail into it because that is the way I personally feel like I am pulling something out of the drawings and, and connecting them to the experiences these people have told me or to what I've seen. It's the, the effort that I'm putting into it that somehow has to resonate makes those two things resonate, I hope. In this case, it, it sounds like, you know, again, we were talking about the, the difference between the immediacy of journalism and the, the process of making comics, uh, but it almost sounds like having a distance between yourself and the interviews is actually a benefit when it comes to making the comic. Well, it's a benefit because when I'm doing the interviews, I'm behaving as a journalist, which is pretty much just trying to focus on getting a story. And you know, often you're talking to people who have many stories to tell you and they'll get them mixed up or they'll rather talk about something else. And as a journalist, it's pretty, it can be pretty cold hearted, but you, you're trying to keep them on track. I mean, you're, you're being careful of them as individuals. You don't want them, you don't want to re-traumatize them. They are having a hard time. If they're crying, you know, you stop them and say, we don't have to go on. But ultimately you're trying to get them to tell you something that might be hard and difficult you behave differently when you're drawing. When you're drawing, you have to, rather than, rather than being that cold-hearted person, you suddenly have to really understand what they went through. It's harder for me to draw things than it is to sort of experience them or to hear them. Because when I'm experiencing, experiencing them or hearing them, I have to take a step back and be distant. And I have to be a bit detached to get to get things right, to, to be accurate. You need detachment. When you're drawing, you, you no longer are detached. Now, what did it feel like? What did it feel like for this person? They told you, but now you've really got to sort of put yourself into it. And maybe that's part of the effort I was telling you about that tries to make it come alive. Suddenly you inhabit the situation in a way you didn't even, you didn't quite do when you were there. <laughs> 